If you're a regular listener to Smashing the Ceiling or you've heard about the Skylark Collective, you'll know by now that I'm all about raising up other women. And since you last heard from me, as well as a lot of new podcasts, I've also been enjoying Femme Foundry, a one-of-a-kind global community for womankind to discover, learn, connect and thrive. One of the key components that sets Femme Foundry apart is their focus on the multifaceted aspects of a woman's life from her career to her wellness, from her spirituality to her mental health. This, along with their founding team and Femme Foundry's global partners, mean they are uniquely positioned as a media powerhouse for women's empowerment on a large scale. With a new improved 2.0 version of the app just launched, Femme Foundry has huge global ambitions with a mission to become the bumble of humanised female networking, learning and support. So download Femme Foundry today and have a look. I would love to know your thoughts. Hello there. Welcome to Smashing the Ceiling, the podcast that showcases the lives of women who've achieved amazing things in their careers, some who've got a really cool or unusual job, and some who've just had a really interesting life. I'm your host, Naomi Mella, founder of the Skylark Collective and the International Women's Podcast Awards. And each week, I'll be sitting down with one woman to hear about the ceilings they've smashed through in their lives. The glass ceiling isn't all about corporate boardrooms, international skyscrapers and towering stilettos. Although don't get me wrong, I love a good high heel. There are women breaking down barriers everywhere, shattering stereotypes and forging their own unique and wonderful career paths. We're here to share their stories with you, to let you know how they got where they are, and how their mentors, mistakes and motivations have led them to achieve the things they have. We're an independent podcast, so if you'd like to support us, please follow, rate and review wherever you listen. Everyone asks you to do this, I know, but it really does make a difference and we'd love it if you could. How often do you think about your own breathing? I bet you are right now. How fast do you breathe? How deeply? Most of the time it's completely unconscious. We just do it and we rarely consider how we breathe unless we're exercising and out of breath or ill and out of breath, as many of us have been during the pandemic. It's only when our capacity to breathe is reduced that we ever consider, without stating the absolute obvious, how important it is. My guest today helps people to breathe better. She helps people to feel better. She reduces their pain and helps them with many other conditions besides. Her name is Caroline Creamer, and she's the owner of Pulborough Natural Health, a clinic in a beautiful part of England, West Sussex. Caroline is a Bowen therapist and a practitioner of Evans Alignment. Her business and interest in health and well-being is one of the reasons that Caroline is on the podcast this week. The other is her remarkable capacity for career reinvention. From being kicked out of school to becoming a chef and working in restaurants, to running a ski company with her husband before being widowed at 34 with three small children, Caroline has an incredible sense of resourcefulness and a can-do attitude that I really admire. She is full of stories, and in this episode we barely had time to scratch the surface of the people she's met in life and how colourful her career has been. We recorded this episode deep in the COVID lockdown and the sound isn't the best on Caroline's line at the beginning, but bear with it as she's worth it. We started at the beginning with what her career aspirations were as a teenager. 
um, I wanted to be one of Pan's people. And I think you're probably too young to even know who Pan's people were. But um, Pan's people were the dance troupe on top of the pops back in the day. Um, they were before Legs and Co. and before, you know, whoever else kind of came, came after that. But my, um, my upbringing is that of, a, of an army child. So um, we lived in various different places. Um, I was born in Germany. Um, we moved from Germany to Yorkshire to back to Germany, um, Hong Kong. Yeah, so because of that, I was sent off to boarding school. I followed my sister into boarding school. Um, and I was sent at the beginning of the summer term. So it wasn't, a, a, you know, when everybody else went back and started a new school. I was sent at the beginning of the summer term because my father had been posted to Northern Ireland um, over with the IRA. And my mother had had a breakdown, um, basically. And we were living in Germany and, and my young brother was put into care. He was a, a, about six months old. Um, and I was then sent off to school early so that my mother could have some time out um, and get some recovery. And I didn't like it. I was quite a shy, quite an introverted child. Um, and so I found school life quite difficult. And I very much relied on my elder sister, who was my my rock. She, I really looked up to her. You know, she was she was there. I, my surviving mechanism was because of her. Um, and so I think probably, it, I don't think it was a conscious decision to behave badly, um, but basically I wasn't the most well-behaved child in the school. Um, so it was kind of stuff that just built up and built up and built up. And eventually the school said, nah, you know, that's enough. Time to go. Um, and how old were you I think then? I was 14. Okay. So I was... Um, I, yeah, I, I just wanted to be at home. I wanted to be around everybody else. And I'd never wanted to go to boarding school in the first place. So, um, yeah, there was no way I was going to do it on my own. I think kind of damage had been done from from education at um, boarding school to get me to the stage where I wasn't interested or I wasn't capable or I didn't want to know. And I'd always had this story of I wasn't academic. Um, basically, I remember that quite strongly I, you know I wasn't an academic and between two siblings who were obviously academic um, but the fact is that eventually aged 30 I worked out that I was intelligent um, but I'd grown up with this middle child syndrome a little bit of being the one who um, wasn't academic and therefore you know, shouldn't be pushed to do A-levels and shouldn't be pushed to go to university. Mind you, having said that, neither was my sister. But it's interesting that, isn't it? Because you're sort of fed this narrative that you're not the academic one of however many children, whether that's one, two, three or more. And actually, if you're told continually that you're not very academic, you just believe that, don't you? And actually, I've, I feel that we talk quite a lot on this podcast about how your sort of early upbringings and particularly with school and have really shaped your career or certainly your attitudes towards work and towards your own success and I definitely think that that kind of narrative of oh don't worry about exams don't worry about a levels you're not going to amount to much is, is kind of quite a, a damaging narrative to be feeding to young women in their teenage years yes and I, I you know to give, be fair to my parents I don't think that they ever sort of said to me um, uh, that you're, you're not going to be good enough. Um, but it was just this, you're not academic. And I, I, I mean, probably my doing sort of linked that to intelligence. 
um, and realizing that actually you can be intelligent and you can be very creative. Um, you can be, and I, th and I think kind of using the word academic is a, um, a, a misconstrued idea in itself because I think you can still be really good at creative stuff and actually be academic in those creative things. I, I, I think our idea of what academia is, I think, is um, needs re-looking at or we need to come up with a new word. That's a really interesting idea, actually talking about academia through creativity is or academic endeavor through creativity is a really interesting concept actually Caroline that's quite novel I mean in our house we refer to it as book smart or street smart and you know it's kind of you can you can be book smart but but not that but not smart in other ways and you can be street smart but not that great at exams and actually neither of them neither one nor the other means that you're going to be successful or not and and I kind of but I like that idea that you've just said about creativity being its own form of academia. That's lovely. I love that. Yeah. And I think, I think we, we could benefit from encouraging young kids now to, to understand that term as well, because I, I think so many get, you know, they, they, they grow up with the belief that they're, they're not good enough because they're, they can't, they're not so good at the math or not so good at the English. And in actual fact, I was very good at math, but I was good at, at um, needlework I was good at cooking I was you know great I loved um, making my own clothes when I was 14 15 16 years old um, and I enjoyed being in the kitchen and cooking and actually I I don't even remember having conversations with my parents about what career path I should take I just seem to remember my mother suggesting to me that um, I was going to leave school at 16 I wasn't going to do A-levels and I should go and off and do either occupational therapy because I think I was actually a very caring person. I think that was, you know, that was something that kind of came out as, um, as, a, as a child and, and growing up. I, I cared and I nurtured. And I remember I used to go and sort of, you know, look after my mom if, or do the housework or do, you know, just do things to help around um, at home, including the cooking. And then the other side was going into hotel management and doing um and, and doing the catering side and somehow that decision was made and I can't remember why or how or whether it was down to um results of my O levels which numbered five and so I, I was directed off to doing hotel management and I loved it you know there was lots of sort of practical stuff I, I learned how to carry 11 wine glasses in one hand I came home very proudly wow. for all my or my or my parents' wine glasses, you know, and then said, look, you know, look what I could do, and um, and we spent time in the in the kitchens cooking. We spent time waitressing. We spent time housekeeping. We were taken down to the Intercontinental in London. That was a great sort of you know exciting trip to go and sort of see how the hotel industry worked, etc. So I um, I got myself a job sort of au pairing and helping out with um, a family who lived opposite, and then I managed to that lasted a few months, and then from there I went and. Um, worked in my first restaurant, um, which was a live-in a live-in job, and I really kind of quite enjoyed that until one day when I'd forgotten to put, or I put too much salt in the bread rolls when I was making the dough, um, and a week later came up to tell me that um, that my job was no longer. So I went from there onto a um, to another restaurant where I lived in with the family, helped them out with their kids. They had this little French bistro. And um, the, the couple, Meg and Simon, were the best people ever. And they became my surrogate parents. Probably something I missed out here is my father left when I was 17. 
um, and he, he'd been having an affair and he left home and left my mother in a really, really, really distraught place. So me leaving at 17 to go off and work in this restaurant and then go off and work into another restaurant and be living out was um, gave me a lot of comfort because I struggled with my with my mother not being very happy. Um, but anyway, Simon and Meg came, became my surrogate parents and guided me. And one day somebody came into the restaurant and said um, they'd just come back from doing a ski season um, as a chalet girl. And I went, God, that just sounds amazing. I, I want to do that. And um, how do you do it? And they said, well, you go to the Sunday Times and you look at the end of the travel section and all of the, the um, companies will be listed. You do that. So this was before, you know, Internet and websites and all of that kind of stuff. Everything was in the paper. So I duly got the Sunday Times come August and I looked down the, the, the bottom and I then rang every single company on there saying, can you please like a job as a chalet girl? Can you please send me through the application form? Um, how old are you? Um, I'm 18. Um, no, I'm terribly sorry. You can't do that. You've got to be 21 to be a chalet girl. And I kept on trying. I kept on trying. Eventually, this one company said, yeah, we'll give you an interview. If you pass that interview, you then had to go back and cook a meal for um, six people, eight people, whatever it was. I went along for my interview and basically, you know, give you all the lowdown on being a chalet girl and what you can do and what you can't do. And basically, you know, if you want to you decide you want to go and have sex with somebody, you just don't do it on our property. You go somewhere else for it. I went, OK, right. Yeah, that's a weird thing to say in an interview. I did continue and I went and had my interview and um, I did my cooking test and I passed that. Um, and I, um, I then went off to go and do a ski season in Maribel for this very small company called Snowtime. Anyway, to cut a long story short, um, I, four years later, married the boss. So basically, basically had this fabulous relationship and, um, and he was 27 years older than me. Um, he was my father figure, basically. You know, hindsight and all the rest of it. Everybody else could see it, but I couldn't. Um, his name was Don and, um, and he was amazing and brilliant and I loved him to bits and I just spent the next 14 years skiing um, every winter and going back to England um, and, and we had a house in, in London, Belfast Park um, in the summer and we had our office there and uh, funny enough our summers were always much busier than the winters because you've got so much to, so much to get through. Um, we had three children together three daughters they were almost brought up on skis they went to the local village school French was something but going back to my school French was something where um, when I went to the second school to do my O-levels they basically turned around and said don't bother you know French is you, you you're no good you're no good no you can't do it don't bother so it's quite interesting that I ended up in France and um, and learning the language as it's spoken rather than as you learn it in school, which are two completely, completely different things. As a young woman and a much younger wife, I wondered what it had been like for Caroline, going from being a chalet girl in the company to the wife of the boss. How was she received? And how did she develop her skills in business with little prior experience? Um, I think I very much learned on the job. I'm a very quick learner. And um, and again, I think I put a lot of that down to my upbringing of, um, of moving around from one country to another, constantly changing places, changing friends, um, you know, finding new new ways of doing things. And I, um, I have kind of a brain that's quite curious. 
Um, so I'm always asking questions as to, you know, to myself as to, you know, what can we do and how can we change it? And um, and having got the, <laughs> the, the three quarters of a year of hotel management background, I had an understanding of how um, this kind of thing could work. So we we started off with with, I think when I started, there were eight chalets. We ended up with 12, 10 chalets, 12 self-catering apartments and two hotels. Um, wow. Yeah, um, but we only end. We were only in that resort. We didn't. We didn't go anywhere else. How it was received by the others? Well, I think because you're the majority of the staff are seasonal. You know, they they come and do a season and then they go off again. You've got a few people in the office um, back in England. I didn't really kind of get involved in the office during the summertime. I was I was then looking after children and things like that. So um, that didn't kind of really matter. But I I know that certainly there were quite a number of staff who were older than me um uh, which I, I think probably did have some kind of little sort of difficulty I think but probably more on my part than on than on theirs as to how I was how I was received um and I think the same with clients actually because they looked at me and, and I always looked very young when I when I was in my 20s I could probably look like I was a teenager um, because I do remember one one customer um coming up and, and referring to my father who of course was my husband um, and so that was um, that was kind of an interesting um, an interesting moment, and I think probably more his embarrassment than mine when I sort of corrected him said, actually you know, me, my husband. You know, so uh, yeah, I, I was there for for fourteen years. What happened next shaped Caroline's life and career in unexpected and seismic ways. She and her husband Don had decided to close their ski company before out of the blue he was diagnosed with renal cancer and her life was thrown up in the air. She picks up the story. We'd gone through um, a, a, a number of different sort of global financial periods from 89 through to, through to 92. Um, we had a few ski seasons that where the snow arrived late, it changed people's understanding of um, of how they booked and all the rest of it so we actually got to a stage where we just thought we can't we can't do this any longer we can't fight it, it it's too much so we um we just shut the company down and um, um sort of, yeah moved back to england full time and just after we did that he was diagnosed he'd gone he had sort of what he felt was a um, a urinary infection he went to the doctor the doctor said well you know i'm sure it's just that but i'm going to send you for scans they sent him for scans and um, basically came back saying, you know, we can see shadows on both kidneys. We need to get this um, this kind of looked at. My youngest, our youngest daughter at the time was six months old. Um, and the other two would have been um, seven and nine, nearly 10. Um, yes, she was, she was probably 10. Um, anyway, so that suddenly became our focus we'd also put the house on the market and had a buyer just as this diagnosis came through and so there were questions was do we move or don't we move um, and we decided that yes we did because if it meant health let's get out of central London let's move to the edge of London anyway it turned out that it never happened so we moved into a hotel on the A1 um, with two suitcases and three children and a, and a husband who was in and out of hospital with um, having you know various tests and things done because they really hadn't at this stage they really hadn't worked out what was wrong they eventually discovered that he had very unusually two primary sites and he had primary tumours on both kidneys. So he was the talk of the Rolfrey um, Hospital there 
um, and they all got very excited and they about it, which was kind of good on one point. They were managed to move, remove the tumours, which were sitting much more on the outside of the kidney. Um, and they were able to remove them and leave 40% of one kidney and 60% of the other, which meant that he had enough kidney to survive without needing dialysis. So that all seemed great. And um, we kind of got on with life and everything seemed perfect. And then um, we'd found, eventually found a new house. It must have been the following year that it then came back in his lungs and he found that he was he was breathless and um, and things weren't very good. And actually, it was the youngest daughter, who was about two um, at the time, who said to me, Daddy's not well, and in a way that a two-year-old, only a two-year-old can say it. I mean, it probably, I paraphrased that something, but, you know, Daddy ill or Daddy ill. And um, and that was after that that we discovered that it had come back in his lungs. So incredible how young children have got a mm. sixth sense of knowing and they were very close, those two. Um, and he, he spent five days in bed at the end of his life. He went very quickly once he'd actually discovered that he was, you know, really taken as a set to the fact that he was going to die, um, which was only about three months before he did die. Um, but prior to that, he was making plans, um, business plans for 20 years time. He was, you know, really looking forward and really sort of sort of living life. Caroline has spoken previously about how Don's cancer treatment stimulated her interest in natural therapies. And as you'll hear, that came to form a major part of the next round of her career. But having wound up their ski business with three children and a husband receiving regular hospital treatment, how did she move forward with her working life? How did she manage living? This amount seems overwhelming for one person to deal with. But as ever, Caroline got on with things with tenacity. Uh, so when my husband was was ill, um, he started building computers um, and he was building computers in the garage and then he would take them down to um, a, a place on Tottenham Court Road where um, they had a sort of, you know, like a sale of, of all computery gadgety type stuff. Um, and he was he was big into all of that. Um, and so he was he was building and selling computers and programming bits that, you know, um, and, and selling them on so he was doing that which enabled him to do it at home I started making cakes um, that was my thing that I something that I could do kids were you know going to school I was sort of looking after them I was looking after him taking him to various things and the one thing that I found very therapeutic and very calming was to make um, you know exotic birthday cakes and, and things like that for people which never made me enough money to um, you know to to help whatever but it um, it got me got me through that time after he died um i discovered because he was so much older than me he'd taken um, all of the responsibility for the finances i had absolutely no idea what was what um i was 34 years old i'd never actually paid an electricity bill or anything like that um and i hadn't worked for anybody other than going to work for him when i was 18 years old and and uh, and all of the time that I did work for the company, I never took a salary. It was, you know, I was, we were just doing it together. Um, so suddenly I, I realized that I needed to go out and work because he had two bank accounts and what was in one bank account wasn't in the other bank account. So one was overdrawn and the other, and the other had, um, there was basically 
£1,500 in one bank account and minus £1,500 in the other. Um, and we had a house uh, and we had the contents of the house. So I had to go out and work um, pretty pretty soon. And so my kids, having had two parents around, suddenly really kind of had no parents around because I was I was out working. And I started off working in um, very locally um, in Elstree Film Studios, working for an executive producer. Um, and that was fine until she couldn't pay me any longer and I, I couldn't possibly stay when she couldn't pay me. And so I then found, got myself a job thinking, well, what can I do? And a job came available, which was to relocate a, um, a company from Reading to London. And I thought, well, I've bought a house before, albeit with my husband, and I've um, managed to sort out finding electricians and, and people to do work in that house. So I can get myself this job I know I can so I bullshitted my way into saying yep no problem at all I can do this and I did do that and and they were happened to be a sports marketing company um, and they ran various sort of sports events and things and I really sort of wanted to go on and do that kind of work because I sort of always thought well I can I can organize things you know I've done that out in, in France with a ski company I can manage to you know all of my children's diaries and my own um, and you know flip pancakes you know it I had that ability to for organisational skills, so I thought, well, I can I can do sports events, and I love sport, um, and so that got me into working within the tennis, so arrange, managing um, the Honda Challenge in the Albert Hall, which was the Champions Tour event. So all of the ex players like Becker and McEnroe and and um, Nastasi and Pat Cash, and they would all come and they would they would play at this event, and we'd hang out with them and go out for drinks at the end of the evening and, and it was all just brilliant it was bloody hard work um and it was probably about nine months work for a 10-day tournament um it was live television it was live on bbc2 so there was that kind of stress and i started off as the assistant manager and then i did sort of a, a, a dual management job um with it in, in subsequent years and and i at the same time i also was working on cricket um events organizing cricket stuff for the um the professional cricket association so that took us into county took us into um england and and you know doing various things for um for those organizations in that sport anyway so um that was great until i realized that i was spending too much time away from home and my daughters needed me and my eldest daughter was beginning to go off the rails a bit and really sort of struggling and so I thought, I, I can't do this. I need I need to work at home more. So I went to the boss and I said, um, I've proven that I can do my job. I do it really well. Can I work from home two days a week? And this is really interesting in today's time. And he said, no. He said, basically, I can take 25 people off the street out there. It was really cheeky. I can take 25 people off the street out there and they can all come and do your job. They won't do it as well as you, I'm sure, but they can do that job. So no, I won't give you, I can't. you can't work from home. So annoying, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, especially when you look at and how everything now, is today, yeah. where everybody's <laughs> exactly. working from home and everyone can prove that they can do it. So I handed my notice in on the spot and worked my worked my once notice and left again without a job to go to. Um, and I then met somebody oh, sort of through the cricket, my cricket connections, um, was introduced to the man who owned a place called Shenley Cricket Centre, which is one of Middlesex County Cricket outground so when Middlesex can't play at Lords they play at other grounds and they can't play at Lords because there's international matches going on so I then got to manage this ground 
um, and I was there for probably about 18 months and we held and I managed international matches and various other things and, and testimonial matches and um, private parties and weddings and you name it and it was two hours uh, two minutes down the road um, from home so it was perfect um, but my daughter was still really this time heavily heavily going off the rails and I had um, the school headmistress turn up on my doorstep on a Sunday afternoon saying I believe your daughter's doing drugs in school so that was a bit of a you know I've come to see you because I know you're on your own um, so I've come to see you at home which was an amazing thing to do um, and I'm then dealing with that sort of scenario so I decided I had to change my whole direction and be at home literally work from home be at home and the only way I could do that was to control my time be able to control what I earned was to was to start again so I sat at a computer and I sort of tapped a few things in and something called Bowen therapy hit the screen now I knew what Bowen therapy was because my mother had been, was, was a Bowen therapist and she trained when it first came into the UK in the early 90s um, and she always said you'd be really good at this you know it's one of your weird things you know devil stuff that you do you know all this alternative stuff that you do no I'm not interested um, and I think that was just me being the rebel probably and not wanting to still as an adult want to do what my mother suggested might be a good idea probably a little bit of that still in me and um, <laughs> anyway I, I sort of looked at this and I thought okay yeah, I'm going to do this but to do it meant um, it was going to be studying for a year although it wasn't continuous study it was sort of, you know, four days and then a gap of a month or so and then another four days and a gap of a month or so. And you had to sort of, you know, work on people and find clients in between time and stuff. And um, and I thought, OK, so while I do this, I could go back to college and do anatomy and physiology. And then I could do massage because that will give me another feel for, for the body and all the rest of it. And I was like, OK, so this is why I'm going to spend this year studying. How can I do that? So um, that meant if I was going to be at home, I no longer needed a, a nanny or an au pair. So I got rid of them. I had a car that they used to use. So I sold that car and I sold my jewellery, basically all apart my um, my engagement ring, I, um, which I had made into a necklace um, and, 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 some, and another piece of jewellery that my husband had given me and everything else I, I sold off. So I spent that first year absolutely 100% totally absorbed and I really found my passion and I found something that just really interested me and it was it it was doing stuff by working with the body. Um, I was, wasn't interested in anything that was forced. So osteopathy and chiropractic and that kind of thing didn't really kind of work for me. I'd also, because I um, worked and lived sport for um, about four years, I was aware of what happens to sports people when they are injured and when they are going through that process of they need to be fit because otherwise they're going to be dropped from the team. Um, that doesn't work for them. It affects them mentally as well as physically. And, you know, I, I knew the routes that they were taking, which is physiotherapy. They were going to osteopaths. They were having acupuncture needles. They were having whatever. So if there was another way of doing it, it had to be something that was different to that. And so finding Bowen therapy as, a, as an option, which I knew because it had worked on me and my mother, I did eventually let her treat me. Um, and, and so I knew that it, I knew that it worked. So that's how I got into doing what I do now, which is um, really drug-free, non-forced um, therapies, which work with the body to help balance us. I'm very much around 
looking at our alignment and when we have equal tension through our alignment of the body and the soft tissue of the body then you're, you're creating the best environment for every other system of the body to work so um, that's kind of where I got to. Having experienced bone therapy, osteopathy, chiropractic treatment, physiotherapy, acupuncture, etc, etc over the years, you name it, I've tried it, I was really interested in the types of conditions that crossed Caroline's radar. Bowen is a technique that releases tension in the fascia, which are the tissues that enclose, stabilise and separate your muscles and internal organs. It promotes the flow of blood and lymph, and it's restorative, healing and relaxing. Personally, I looked to Bowen for musculoskeletal issues. I've got a chronically bad neck and shoulders from my job, but I've increasingly seen friends try techniques like Bowen for fertility, migraines and digestion issues, to name but a few. Caroline has a deep love of sport and started her practice looking at sports people. But who else does she see? Um, so as well as the musculoskeletal, um, the musculoskeletal issues, and then with the sport, it was all around, um, you know, keeping them fit and trained so that they were in peak performance. But other things that I do see um, can be anything from from IBS, um, for asthma, um, for anxiety and um, and mental health, because again, what what you need to require the right environment in the body when you've got that right the right tissue tension then the the glands which um are producing the hormones for to, to give us a stability with our um our anxiety and all, all of those kind of things then that there the gland system the uh, endocrine system is able to um, function better um, it can be for menstrual issues and menopausal issues so there is a um, there's a wide range headaches migraines um, so there's, a, there's an awful lot more than just the physical side and just the, um, you know, me and my passion with sport and working with um, with sports people. And I did. I mean, I ended up in London with a with a practice in Mayfair, um, uh, which was wow. pretty, pretty special from where I started, which was in my front room at home um, and um, and getting people through the door by by telling them they needed to come for a massage. Um, because I knew that everybody knew what massage was, but they didn't know what bone therapy was. So if I could get them in the door for a massage and then go, actually, you don't need that, but try this, um, that I would, I'd start to build up. And that happened very, very quickly. Because I'm always interested with new businesses like that. We talk a lot on this podcast, again, to new entrepreneurs. And I really like to talk about the kind of how of it all. Like, that's a huge transition from starting massaging people in your front room to having a clinic in Mayfair. How long did it take you to build that? And how did you go about doing it? Um, I, I started off with, um, adverts in, I sort of looked at it and I thought, okay, um, an understanding is the more that people see something and hear about something, then, you know, I can't remember if it's the fifth time or the seventh time or whatever, then they actually, they begin to act on it. So even though, um, they might not have known what it was that I do, I advertised in the local paper, um, every week. And then I found there was a, one of those glossy freebie magazines, that um, that was going around and gets delivered once a month, and I contacted them and they said, well, you know, if you buy six quarter pages, then we'll give you an advertorial. And um, and I went, well, I I don't really want an advertorial because I don't believe in my industry. Writing about yourself in that way is actually um, very beneficial. I don't think it, it necessarily helps. You need it to be. Um, more experiential from somebody else's point of view and subjective. 
so um, I, the woman who who ran the magazine um, said, well, let me come and, and try out what you do. So she came down and she, we sort of got sat there and we we chatted and we chatted for an awful long time and I treated her and then I chatted an awful lot more. And basically we had this shared experience of we'd both been widowed. Um, and so, and she'd been widowed and left with one daughter and, you know, I'd been widowed at 34 and left with three daughters. And so she really understood where I came from. And um, so she said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to write about it and I'll, you know, I'll do a piece. Anyway, the upshot was she did a double page spread um, on me in the middle of this glossy magazine. And from the day that magazine came out, my phone didn't stop ringing. And it was really I used to see at the time 10 people a day, bearing in mind that, you know, everybody comes in for an hour. Um, and I, I sort of had to find my pea breaks in the middle and my food breaks. And I was sort of, you know, making soup at night so that I could just go into the kitchen in between and have a you know quick sip of soup out of a cup um, to, ma to manage to sort of work. But. It, it was a huge, you know, I think I was doing 45 people, 45 people a week. And I was I ended up doing four and a half days um, because I needed some time off with kids and all the rest of it to um, to make that sort of happen. And so from there, I then moved into um, I then sold the house, the family home and bought a flat in, in Marlebone. Um which was um, was quite nice, and I was actually I was living with somebody else at the stage. I saw I was having a another relationship, um, a new relationship, and um, and I I then got this flat, and I then started to work out of the flat until the relationship bust up, and then I had to move into the flat, so I couldn't work out of that flat anymore. And so my next step was to um, was to I found this place that had just opened up on South Moulton Street um, in, in central London. Um, and it was just an amazing thing of somebody, I saw somebody on um, BBC, um, I think they had something called Inspired or something like that. And there was a story of this girl who'd got scoliosis and she was into her sport. She was a runner. She was a 5,000 meter runner. And the story was how she'd managed to become um, a successful runner with scoliosis and running through. And she was only 19 years old. And she'd literally just got to the stage where she'd had her back brace taken off. She'd been wearing it for three years, had her back brace taken off. And she was saying, you know, the, the issue I have now is is just the tension that comes through her S-curve and, and having to work to um, to keep that mobile. And so I thought, brilliant, she's the person that I need to speak to. And so I, I found a way of contacting her and I got her to come into my um, the clinic in, in Mayfair. And I said, I, I think she came in with her father. And I said, I, I believe I can help you um, and I can help you just keep that mobility through your spine. And so I um, I worked with her and starting with working with her and I was became really interested in breathing. Um, and actually, I probably had an interest in breathing from when I lived out in the mountains and even sort of prior to that. But um, I realized that to be able to really get into the, um, the tissue of the thoracic, you know, the rib cage and, and that area is actually we kind of need to get it from the inside out and I went off to America and I learned some breathing stuff over there and I went to India and I learned pranayama and I became a yoga teacher because I thought that would that would sort of help but all of it was too involved too took too much time um to, to for people to put it into their day you know it meant sort of you know a good half hour of practice or an hour of practice with these things that I've been learning 
And I thought nobody's got that, nobody's going to do that. And actually, I, I don't think we've got it quite right because when I try and breathe in, if I try to take a breath in, it gets sort of stuck. You can't really, and it's all when somebody takes take a big breath in, you'll get. I mean, if I ask you now to take a big breath in, can you can you do that? It gets. I can even I can see it on you because I'm looking at you on the screen, but I can see where it gets stuck just just about here. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, well, that's not right because the other. Um, misinformation that people seem to have or idea that people seem to have is that their lungs start about you know a third of the way down and come down to the bottom of their ribs that's not the case your lungs start right under number one rib right underneath the collarbone up here is where your lungs begin and they only go down about two-thirds of the way they don't come down to the bottom of your ribs so if you've got lungs right up here why can't we breathe into them right up here so um yeah. So I started asking questions about how do we get in it? What, what, what's there? What, what are our lungs made up of? And, and not just the lungs, but the structure. And the rib cage isn't a cage at all. It's movable. So therefore, we shouldn't even call it a cage. Um, and then we start looking at the you've got muscles in between each of your ribs. Actually, you've got more than one layer of muscles between your ribs and they go in different directions. And so if we've got muscles, we need to make them move. And I was realizing that the people coming in to see me, including elite athletes these weren't moving so what could we do to to make them move and I realized that any muscle if you want to tone it properly you've got to fully extend it and fully contract it so I started playing around with how do we do that so we need to really empty our lungs and how often do you really empty your lungs and even if you're a swimmer and you're swimming across the length of the pool or the width of the pool and you're trying to see if you can do it underwater most people actually do it holding their breath rather than getting rid of rather the air as they go, yeah. at, rather than exhaling as they go. So this started me on a process of understanding and going in and researching more about the respiratory system, more about the lungs, more about residual volume, and what does that mean, and tidal wave, and all of these terms that medical people talk about with the lungs. So I started introducing um, this new idea of, of a breathing exercise, and that's all it is, is an exercise, it's not how we breathe to these athletes that I was working with and using them as guinea pigs and every single one of them without fail, every single one of them got a personal best off the back of wow. this efficiency. You can't, you can't change the capacity of your lungs, but you can change the efficiency of your lungs. Mm. And because breathing is a series of, um, of phases that happens from taking the breath into the lungs to the gaseous exchange to getting into cells to getting those cells round to the various parts of the body if we're not giving it its best at the first point which is breathing then we can't expect it to be doing its best necessarily at the end it's only ever going to be as good as its weakest points along that if the, weak, if the weakest point is the is the inhale to begin with then you know um, I was about to swear we're we're not not in a very good place. No, it's fine. You can swear away. This is a sweary. Oh, podcast. okay, 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 good, good. Because I was going to say you're fucked. So um, if if we're not if yes. we're not doing that if we're not doing it properly and basically our health needs oxygen. Every part of our body, every cell in our body requires oxygen. And cells make oxygen themselves in the mitochondria right in the middle, and that's the powerhouse of 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 each cell. But um, we need oxygen to come in through the body and there's only 21 percent of oxygen in the air that we breathe so it's not like the air is full of oxygen there's only 21 percent and staying sort of with the 20s the brain will take 20 percent of the oxygen that we breathe in so if we're not breathing in 
very much to begin with because we are shallow breathers and our um, our diaphragm and our respiratory muscles aren't toned, therefore they're not fluid, they're not flexible, then that 20% is only a small 20% of a 20% that it could be, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. I don't know about anyone else listening to this, but I've suddenly become very aware of my own breathing. (laughs) It's funny when you're talking about it, I start to think, oh, how am I breathing? Am I breathing in fully? What I've discovered and what a lot of the other breathing exercises are doing out there is they very much focus on the inhale and inhaling. And when we inhale, our diaphragm is contracting. And when our diaphragm contracts and doesn't fully extend in response, um, then what we basically start to do is create a shortened muscle. So think about a bicep muscle and doing lots of bicep curls where you're, you know, um, bending your, your arm up and bending your elbow, but you're never fully straightening your arm. What you end up with, and this is what um, bouncers look like outside nightclubs and things, <laughs> is that, you know, they have these sort of arms that hang and they can't straighten them because their bicep muscles are too short. So that's what happens with the diaphragm when we focus on breathing in. And you've got these machines um, out there to practice inhaling and they're all about sucking in through this um, under pressure but what you're doing is you're shortening the muscle when you do it you're not lengthening you're not actually getting to the lengthening part so that's why I turned it upside down and actually focused on the exhale so that we really stretch so that the muscle will then bounce back breathing is something that's voluntary and involuntary and when we we think about it, normally because we're out of breath or we're choking or we can't breathe for because we've run up the stairs and we've breathless when we get to the top, that's normally because you've forgotten to breathe on the way up, by the way. And um, and and the other side of it is the involuntary breathing, which is happening while we're asleep at every other moment. And that's where we want our respiratory muscles to be springy and soft and movable because that's when they're going to be doing the best for us when we're not thinking about it. You know, how many times do we actually think about our breathing? Very rarely. So fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And I always just throw the floor open at the end of interviews to my guests. Advice, mistakes you've made that you've learned from. I must say it strikes me, Caroline, that you the word I would apply to you is resourceful. Um, you strike me as an incredibly <laughs> resourceful person. And Thank you. just amazing overcoming of adversity in so many different ways um but is there anything else you would like to add you know wisdom nuggets etc so i think it's okay to dig yourself a hole um i think it's okay to um to have a bad day um my advice would be is that it is a choice and therefore if it's a choice i suggest if you're digging yourself a hole take a ladder with you that is long enough to climb back out again Um, also to understand that every day, I mean, I like to think that every day I'm giving my hundred percent, um, into what I do. And that's not about perfectionism. It's just about achieving. And it's about going to bed at the end of the day, knowing that I've, I've done my best for that day, but understanding that my hundred percent today might be very different to my what my 100% is tomorrow. And that's going to bear, bear in mind on how well did I sleep? Um, what else is going on in my life or whatever, but, but not beating myself up because I haven't done, I haven't done enough or 
um, yeah, from that point. So I think that sort of sort of helps on the self-esteem. I'm I'm also one who talks very much in the positive rather than the negative. So if somebody says to me, um, "Oh God, I don't want it to rain today," I'll immediately correct them and say, "You want it to be sunny." Um, and it's almost like it's a I don't know whether I picked that up at some point in life, but it, it's um, it's there. I also people say to me, God, you know, how awful what you've been through. Um, you've lost your husband. And it's difficult for some people to understand when I will say I wouldn't be the person I am today if I hadn't had that journey and that everything in life is a lesson or a blessing. And in actual fact, if it's been a lesson, then it's also been a blessing. Um, and it's how I look at, at the experiences um, that I have that I think have taken me through today. And I think I like to hope that I've passed that on to my children. I think I have. Mm. <laughs> I'm sure you have. And you described yourself earlier as a, as a rebel, but I, I think you are definitely a rebel with a cause, not a rebel without a cause. So uh, these days um, you are a fantastic woman with incredible career, um, chef, entrepreneur, ski not to ski bum, a ski, a, a, I don't know what the opposite of ski bum is, <laughs> <laughs> ski businesswoman. But yes, incredible. I'm um, so lovely to hear about everything that you've done. Um, I've really enjoyed chatting. I could chat to you all day, Caroline. Um, it's so uh, there's so many things we didn't even get onto. Um, but yes, thank you so much for your time. Um, I've really appreciated chatting to you, and um, you have given us a wonderful interview. Thank you. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. that's all for this week you'll find all the links you need to everything we've discussed in this episode in the show notes that will be sitting right there in front of you on whatever podcast app you use so do just have a look in there if you want more info or have a sneaky peek at the socials if you've enjoyed this episode please just share it wherever you can on your own social media and if you found the podcast interesting or useful then please do tell a friend we're always keen for new listeners if you can find it in your heart to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or give us a shout out on your socials, then I would love you very much as it helps others to find us. We're on Instagram and Facebook at The Skylark Collective and our website is www.skylarkcollective.co.uk. See you next time.